Welcome to the sermon podcast for New Life Church's Cabot Campus. We are located at 3400 West Main Street in Cabot, Arkansas. Our service times are Sundays at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. To find more information about what we believe, upcoming events, and more, please visit newlifechurch.tv or you can text the word Cabot to 88000. Hey, we're going to be studying the Word. How many of you guys love the Word of God more than anything? Come on now. I wanted to throw this out there. Uh, every year, I, I kind of try to pick a different reading uh, program or a reading plan, if you will. It just helps me keep in track. And uh, so the last couple of years, I've read through the Bible through a, a chronological study, basically when the different books were written, kind of reading it according to that history. And I've been using a reading program. I won't throw it out there. There's lots of them out there, but one that you may want to check out. It's called uh, the Bible Recap. Uh, there is a, a lady named Tara Lee Cobble that does a podcast with it every day that accompanies the reading plan. And so the great thing about that is it gives a little bit more context. You know, it's kind of a little, a little devotional thought. But at the beginning of every one of the books, there's also a video. If you have a smartphone, there's a video that you can watch that will give you the full context for the book that you're getting ready to read. It gives the history, who wrote it, why, when, all that. And so uh, those types of things, I think it just help us get a little bit more meat, a little bit more depth when it comes to the Word. So I wouldn't say that that's my only Bible reading because I have other devotions that I look at and then just my own study time as well. But as far as a reading plan, if you want to get on board, and even though we're a little bit into the year, you can still jump in and start listening to those or, or reading those. And sometimes, honestly, I just have my Bible app read the scripture to me because I don't have time necessarily to sit down and read it. Uh, but uh, I would just want to throw that out there. It's called Bible Recap, Terry Lee Cobble. Today I want to talk to you about being an overcomer. Uh, there's a lot of people throughout history that have overcome Tremendous odds. In 2004, down three games to zero, uh, the Boston Red Sox, who were under this curse, if you will, on their franchise, came back, did the impossible, overcame the impossible, came back three games to zero. It's never happened before. Came back and beat the Yankees. I'm always up for the Yankees getting beat anytime, anywhere. Come on now. Nobody's behind me on this. That's all right. I'm always for the underdog. But anyway, they won the World Series. After more than a half dozen defeats in politics, a failed business, a 50-year-old Abraham Lincoln on the brink of despair decided to run one more time for president. He became president at the age of 52. What are the odds of that happening? Down 28 to three, midway through the third quarter, the Patriots had less than 1% chance of beating the Falcons. The Patriots would have to play perfect and the Falcons would have to lose their minds, and they did. And the Patriots won. What are the odds? In 1891, on a whaling ship called the Star of the East, a whaler named James Bartley fell overboard only to be swallowed by a whale. Fifteen hours later, while that whale was being gutted, Bartley was found alive and unconscious. What are the odds? I feel like when we're little, we have a lot of courage to overcome great odds. Like I was constantly testing the odds when I was a kid. Like my mom can attest to this, that's why I got a lot of scars. Like if you have a kid who's constantly needing Band-Aids and stuff, they're the ones that are always testing the odds, like just checking this stuff out. I would test all kinds of odds. Like it, I, I, 
we lived at this ranch in Colorado, outside of West Coast, Colorado. We had this big old hay barn. It had probably, at the peak of the roof, it was like 35 feet. And when the snow would come through, these drifts would develop around the barn. And my brother and I, we'd climb up at the very tip of this barn, and we'd take trash bags, because those are parachutes. <laughs> and we would jump off the barn into the snow drifts, just testing the odds. It's like, you know, whether it was at the top of a steep hill on your bike and you feel like, man, I got this, no big deal. Or writing your first love letter, check yes or no. Come on, how many of y'all remember that? All kinds of boldness. It's like, look, I ain't got time for any of this wishy-washy stuff. Just tell me yes or no. I got people to see, places to go. Let me know. Or maybe applying for a job, your first job, and there were 73 other people that applied for the same job, but you had this boldness and confidence that you were gonna be the pick. When we're young, I feel like we've got this bold, audacious faith to test the odds. I also feel that way too often as we grow older, we lose that. We lose the childlike faith and boldness and it seems to shrink to the size of all of our circumstances. In our text we're gonna be looking at today, the children of Israel, they had left slavery behind them. They're walking out of Egypt with riches in their hands, finally headed out to worship God and eventually to the promised land. But what they didn't know is God had decided to lead them on a very long journey, a long path that was gonna take way more time and be way more difficult than they had ever imagined. And they find themselves at the very beginning of this journey, literally stuck between a rock and a hard place. Exodus chapter 13 will be the start of our text today. Verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter for God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. And some of you are finding yourself in a time that's just like this right now. The things that you really want, the things that are in your heart that you desire, they're taking way longer to come your way than you could have ever have dreamed of. And there's this major obstacle that you never imagined that's standing in your way and the Israelites are facing this. They've got a sea in front of them. They've got mountains on either side and they've got the Egyptian army coming up behind them. This is like a God-sized cul-de-sac that they're facing. Only one way out and they can't go that way. So what do you do? What do you do when the odds are not in your favor? When you can't go around your problems, you can't go over them, the fact is you're gonna have to go through. But you're gonna have to have faith in God to lead you through this. But I think if you're gonna look at what it takes to have faith to go through it, you also have to be very aware of the very opposite of faith, and that's fear. But I think a lot of times what we don't realize is there are some less obvious characteristics, if you will, or I would call them friends that accompany fear. These things that tag along with fear that sometimes become a part of our personalities. They're coping mechanisms, but they are a representation of fear. So I think you gotta look out for the ever-present friends of fear. And the first one I wanna talk about is a sarcastic spirit. 
a sarcastic spirit. I know as soon as I say that, some of you in the room are like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. How many of y'all ever used sarcasm before as a form of humor? Anybody in the house? Okay, I just want to point this out before I get started. Just like there is a difference between lying and being a liar. There's a difference between using sarcasm from time to time and having a spirit of sarcasm that's a part of your personality. There's a difference between those two things. So let's look at this scripture in chapter 14. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and they were, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to God. Then they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? Okay, so you can see complaining here. Complaining was ultimately the biggest reason why the Israelites wind up spending so much time in the wilderness. You also see this panicked prayer here, but you can definitely hear the sarcasm dripping from this question. Did you bring us out here just to die? Weren't there enough graves back in Egypt? Very sarcastic. So when I was a little kid, like I would get in trouble for pretty normal stuff that little boys would get in trouble for, right? Like, you know, playing with matches, you know, stealing candy from a store, sticking scissors in an outlet, chasing my brother to try to stab him with a butter knife. You know, normal stuff that most boys get in trouble with when they're little. But I know as I began to get older, what I would get in trouble for changed because I developed a little bit of a mouth. Seems to happen right around preteen. I don't know if anybody can testify, but it seems like right around then, it's like now all of a sudden I feel like I have this intellectual ability to not just do stupid stuff, but to say stupid stuff. And usually it would present itself through sarcasm. Now, part of my testimony is my parents got divorced when I was 13 years old. And I do believe that it was a part of that process and the instability that that created in my life that really was a catalyst and really perpetuated this issue of sarcasm. And over those years, I became very cynical and sarcastic. And I remember, man, there was no trouble like the trouble I would get in when I would mouth off to one of my parents. And uh, it was like the fear of God, like you don't mess with that. But really what was happening was I was struggling with a tremendous amount of insecurity. The biggest insecurity that I was facing was because I was moving around so much and went to so many different schools, I developed this major fear of rejection, that people weren't going to accept me. But instead of letting that weakness be apparent, I would cover it up with sarcasm. I would cover it up with cynicism, being critical towards other people, because as long as it was about somebody else, then it didn't have to be about me. It, it could stay, the focus it could stay away from me. So I missed this for years. I missed this for a long time. You can take this to the bank though. Sarcastic people are often very fearful, insecure people. Sarcasm can definitely be evidence of a root of fear in someone's life. 
We always make fun of things we fear. We always ridicule what we're afraid of. And that's why insecure people are often cynics. They do that to keep people at a distance with sarcasm, cynicism. So in seasons, I've been more than just using sarcastic. I've been a sarcastic, cynical, critical person. And I used to just say, ah, it's just my personality. But God pointed out to me, that attitude, that spirit in you is fear that is being perpetuated by insecurity and insecurity is ultimately revealing a lack of faith and trust in me. So a sarcastic spirit is a friend of fear. Another one, blame transfer. That's a friend of fear. Chapter 14, verse 11, second part of verse 11 says, what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Just to be clear, God's, or Moses didn't make anybody leave. Like nobody was holding a bow and arrow to anybody's head saying you gotta go. He just said, hey, I'm going back to Israel. Anybody wanna come? And a million people came. That's how it happened. But as soon as fear kicked in, now all of a sudden, it's gotta be somebody else's fault. If you're raising kids, you know how strong the blame game can be, right? Like it's always somebody else's fault. And you gotta go and investigate it, try to figure out what's really going on. Who did it really start with? But this started way back in the garden. Y'all remember this from the very beginning. Got Adam and Eve and they fell into sin, so they're hiding and God comes looking for them. Adam, where are you? I'm here. Why are you hiding? Well, I'm naked. Who told you you were naked? What had happened, God, was the woman you gave to me. Y'all notice he didn't say, Eve, my precious wife. No, at that point, it's the woman you gave to me made me. It was her. So God goes to Eve. Eve, what's up? Paraphrasing. Well, God, the devil made me do it. It was the serpent. The blame game has been strong from the very beginning. But what was it perpetuated by? Fear. Unjustified fear. Irrational fear. But fear perpetuated it. This is so typical. When we become afraid, a lot of times we will blame other people for our problems. When we start excusing ourselves, we'll immediately begin accusing someone else. And we will pass the buck because we are afraid, honestly, just to commit to anything. And because of that, we won't commit to a job. We won't commit to marriage. We won't commit to the church because of fear, because we're afraid. The blame transfer. Another friend of fear is the dream thief. The truth is your purpose in God, God's dream for your life is gonna take you taking some risk. Because fruit is not where it's safe. It's way out on the end of the limb. And you're gonna have to crawl out there to get it. And what I've learned is this. 
Fear has killed infinitely more dreams than any demon, adversity, uh, persecution, or sickness has ever killed. Fear. Fear kills God-sized dreams more than anything. This is why Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power of love and of a sound mind. Why was he telling him this? Because, because Timothy was young and he was feeling a lot of opposition from the churches he's ministering to. They're all telling him that he's young. They're all telling him he's immature. They're all telling him that they know when he doesn't. And he, so he's shrinking back from his calling. And Paul says, no, no. Basically what Paul says, you can't lead in an atmosphere of fear. If you're going to achieve the dream that I have for you, you can't surrender to fear. Fear causes us to give up and to retreat and to turn back. That's what happened to Israelites. Verse 12 of chapter 14. We'd rather be slaves in Egypt than die in the desert. This is an amazing verse if you think about it. Like 400 years of slavery and oppression. 400 years. And the first time that fear hits them in the face, in spite of 400 years of hell, they can't find it in themselves to see that there can be anything better in front of them than what was behind them. And they'd rather go back to that. And I see this over and over and over again in people's lives. Adversity, fear, insecurity, people come up against it instead of facing it, instead of digging deep and finding what it is that God has placed inside of them to overcome, they'd rather go back and live in the cycle. And they stay in that perpetual, monotonous, mundane, life-sucking cycle. It's a dream stealer. What I find most of the time it's, it's like fear is like an expectorant. If you take an expectorant, what do you take an expectorant for? Because you're trying to clear junk out of your lungs, right? Everybody's taken an expectorant in the last couple of years probably. But what I find is that fear is an expectorant. If you swallow fear and it gets in your soul, you will cough up God's dream for your life. You'll, you'll lose it. You'll give it up. You'll let fear replace it. You've got to find a spirit of faith about you that is bold, no matter what. One of the things I do love about kids is they are bold and confident about stuff that they should never be bold and confident about. They are completely convinced that they are right about stuff that they are completely wrong about. Our youngest, Grayson, she is a leader. We know she's gonna lead. We hope that she leads women to the Lord and not a gang in a prison. It could go either way though. Okay, but we're praying for the first. But she is very confident about stuff. Very confident about stuff. She will say some of the craziest stuff. And it's like, that, like that's, that's worse than Wikipedia. Like that, that has no accuracy to it whatsoever. That's totally wrong. But she'll be completely convinced that she's right. She'll just go around telling people stuff all the time. At one point when she was four years old, there was this song that she liked. It's called What a Beautiful Name. It's a powerful song. And in this song, there's a lyric that says, you have no rival and you have no equal, okay? 
But when Grayson would sing it, and she would sing it loud and with confidence, she would sing, you have no eyeballs, you have no earrings. You have no eyeballs, you have no earrings. Thank you, Jesus. And we're like, baby girl, that's not right. Like, you try to make it spiritual somehow. It's like, I don't even, I mean, love is blind, I guess, you know? Like, I don't, what do you do with that? We tell it, baby, that's, that's not the lyric. It's, you have no rival. You have no equal. Nope. No. You have no eyeballs. You have no earrings. We're like, explain it to us. Why, that is correct. (laughs) But I love that boldness. You know what I find? I find that there's a lot of people lately that are fighting hard to be right about all the wrong subjects and not fighting hard enough to be right about the only thing that matters. And that's the truth of the word of God. It's their purpose. It's their calling. The enemy of fear is always gonna be faith. The enemy of fear is always gonna be faith. The story in the Bible, a lot of us remember hearing about it on flannel boards in Sunday school growing up, Joseph. And Joseph, he was the son of Jacob, his favorite son, and his brother sold him into slavery. Joseph spent many years 12 to 14 years in captivity, but eventually God promoted him. God used him. He became governor over Egypt. Meanwhile, his brothers who had sold him into slavery and his dad Jacob were back in Israel in a famine, needed help, went to Israel, found out Joseph was there. They thought he was dead. They thought he was gone. They knew how much it meant to their dad that Joseph would be alive. And so they go back to tell their father, Jacob, Joseph's still alive, he's still alive. Because at this point, Jacob had spent over a decade in total discouragement and depression. I love reading through the word. There's always characters that can relate to some of the spaces that we live in. And he he was there, he was just discouraged and depressed because because he lost his son, Joseph. In Genesis 45, verse 26, it says this, Joseph is still alive, they told him. He is governor of all the land of Egypt. Jacob was stunned at the news. He couldn't believe it. But they repeated it to Jacob. They repeated to Jacob everything Joseph had told them. And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, their father's spirits revived. And that's my prayer for you. Your faith would be revived. When all the odds are against you, that there's a couple of things that you can seek your your faith into, and here's the deal. I'm not gonna tell you probably anything you haven't heard before, but just like with Jacob, he had to hear it more than once. And sometimes we gotta hear it more than once before it gets into our spirit. I wanna give you a couple of things that I think can help revive your faith so that you can be convinced again or maybe for the first time, you are an overcomer. There are no odds set against you that are too great. The first thing is this, God 
always has a plan. God always has a plan. It's not 99% of the time for everybody else, but not for me, not with this situation, not with this circumstance, not with my struggle, not with my sin. No, God always has a plan. Every time. As my kids get older, I find that they require a lot more information. They're always asking, what are we doing today? They want to know, what's happening Friday night? What's happening Sunday after church? What are we doing? What's the plan? What are we doing? What's going on? But what I'm learning is this. One of the reasons why they are asking about that is because love and a plan go hand in hand. And people feel most loved and cared about when they feel like there's been consideration given to what they need and there is a plan. Like I've learned that about my wife. When it comes to gifts, one of her love languages is gifts, right? Which means we don't have a lot of money. And, uh, <laughs> but what I've learned is this. What I've learned is this. It's actually not how much money I spend on the gift. It isn't how big it is. It's not even always exactly what it is. It is, did I spend the time and the energy and the effort to have a plan to think about what would bless her? What would make her feel that I care and love her? That's what she's looking for. I'm sure I have bought multiple gifts that sucked. But as long as I showed that I had a plan, that I was intentional, that I cared and put forth effort from my heart and from my mind, daddy's going to have a good Valentine's. That's all I'm going to say about it, all right? By the way, Valentine's Day is tomorrow. If you don't have a plan, man, may God have mercy on your soul because nobody else will. God always has a plan. However tough it gets, however squeezed you feel, God has a plan. Let's go back to the beginning of the chapter because we all know that Moses and the Israelites are facing the Red Sea, right? Mountain on one side, mountain on the other, army coming behind him. But how did they get into this problem? Let's read about it. Chapter 14, verse 2. Tell the people to march towards Pi Hahiroth. I got to read that super slow or I cannot get it. Hahiroth. Between Migdal and the sea. Camp there along the shore, opposite of Baal Safon. Then Pharaoh will think. Those Israelites are confused. They're trapped between the wilderness and the sea. How'd they get into this tough spot? God put them there. Right in the middle of it. He got them into the tight spot. Why? Because he had a plan. He knew that if he took them the easier route, that they were going to be in the middle of a war that they couldn't win because they weren't ready for it. But he also knew that the Egyptian army was going to chase them no matter what they were going to. So he put him in the perfect place where he could get the glory for himself, but also defeat the enemy at the exact same time. 
God had a plan. We haven't all seen his plan yet, but he always has a plan. You can go 20 years without talking to God, running away from him, and he still has a plan for you. You can run the exact opposite of God's plan, his word, his purpose. You may be an expert at sinning, but no matter how long you've been running, how good you have done at trying to jack up his plan and purpose, he has been pursuing you and still has a plan. And every time you mess up the plan, he's got a contingency upon contingency upon contingency. He is the God that has a plan for your life, no matter what you've tried to do to screw up your life, no matter what somebody else has done to try to screw up your life, no matter what situation or circumstance you have faced, God still has a plan for your life. God has a plan. He has a plan. Jeremiah 29, 11. I know you may not, and it may take a while. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Psalm 45. Your plans for us are too numerous to list. I love that. I love that. In his infinite knowledge and sovereignty, until your dying breath, God will always have a plan to reconcile you back to himself. He's got a plan for you. Also, God has given you some authority. He's got a plan and he's given you some authority. Verse 13, chapter 14, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Some of you need to hear that from the Lord today. He's gonna fight for you. Who do you want to get justice? You or the creator of the universe? Who do you want vindication from? An organization, your sense of right and wrong or the creator of the universe? Let God fight for you. Be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. In other words, you're not a lame duck in your circumstances. You have some decisions to make and you have some authority you need to exercise, but you are not stuck. Verse 13 and 14 sounds so spiritual. Let's just sit and wait on God. Verse 15, God says, stop praying, start acting. Start moving. Move towards your obstacles. Move towards the thing you're afraid of. Experts will tell you that 70 to 90% of all communication is actually nonverbal, uh, which is a major issue in our culture because there's way too much communication that happens digitally now. Too much communication that happens through post and through text and not enough communication that happens eye to eye, sitting in front of somebody, having a real and honest conversation. Too much communication is lost in translation. It's misunderstood. It's, there's too much tone. There's... There's too much body position that communicates way too much 
And I believe that if in relationally speaking, that God has created us in such a way that almost 90% of our communication is nonverbal, why would it be any different in our relationship with him? But too often we're spending a lot of time talking about our faith, praying about our faith and not living our faith and showing our faith. God's ready for some action to be put forth in the things that we say we believe. He's ready for us to lay hold of and to speak the things that we've read in our hearts and heads, but they've never come to fruition in our lives because we don't say them and we don't act on them. God is looking for people that let their nonverbal communication back up all their internal monologue. He's looking for faith. But a lot of times the reason why we don't is because we have forgotten or surrendered or left behind the authority that we have because of Jesus, because of what he did on the cross. So Moses, he raises his staff. Remember from the beginning, from the burning bush, God gave him this staff and that staff represented his authority. And he used it miraculously. Every plague was started by Moses raising his staff, by Moses using his staff. Throughout the entire wilderness experience, he would use his staff to walk in, to invoke God's authority and to invoke God's power in his life over and over and over again. What has God put in your hand that you have quit using? What has God put in your hand that has given you authority that you've stopped using, standing on and applying in your life? Well, I would start with the word of God. I would start about with the truth about everything that it says about you, that it's not a story for everyone else. It is a personal love letter written to you for the application in your life. The word of God, but also in the name of Jesus. Because if you have surrendered to him as Lord and Savior, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to Jesus. And if you surrender to him, the same authority that happens on Jesus flows through you. And anything that would set itself against who you are in Christ Jesus is under that authority if you take up the authority. But there's too many Christians that are not taking it up. I love this verse, this, this passage of scripture, Matthew chapter 16. This is not in your notes. So if you want to read it, you're going to have to get your Bible app out or your Bible. Chapter 16, starting in verse 13 of Matthew. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea and Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one or, or one of the other prophets. But what about you? He asks, who do you say I am? And that is a question directly from the spirit of God to every one of you. Not what does Pastor James say about Jesus? Not what does somebody in some meme say about Jesus on social media? No, what do you say? Who is Jesus to you? What do you say about him? Who is Jesus to you? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This was not just for Peter. This is for every one of us. This is for every one of us. And I think some of us, we need to stand on the authority that we have in the name of Jesus. 
and we need to speak that authority over different areas of our life. Some of you, you need to take that authority and walk in it when it comes to your kids. Look, I think you should pursue every resource you can when your kid is struggling. If they need therapy or counseling or medication, I'm fine, but will you please start with prayer and the authority of the name of Jesus Christ with your kids? Will you please try, first and foremost, that every night before they go to sleep, you stand in the gap, you stand in the authority that you have because of the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross on the cross for them, not just for you, but for them, even if they haven't surrendered their life to him, you're their authority, you're their covering. Stand on the authority. Will you please start in prayer in authority over your finances and saying that the devil can't take them because they belong to the kingdom of God and his glory? Will you stand on the authority in the name of Jesus for your marriage and continue to stand even if the other person isn't willing to stand? Will you stand on the authority that you have in the name of Jesus? Will you stand? Take it up. This says you've been given the keys to the kingdom of God. The keys to the kingdom of God. I've got these, this set of keys right here. With these keys, I can get into any New Life Church campus across the state. Like if I'm just in that city, it's not my campus, but I can just roll up in there, open that door, go see if they got some leftover donuts somewhere, you know? Just, I can just walk right in there. They, I've been given this authority. I've been given, and, and with it comes responsibility. It also means, man, I better not leave a door open that shouldn't have been left open. It means I've got responsibility but I've been given access. You've been given the keys to the kingdom of God. You have full access to his authority. Take them up and use them. Use them. The truth is this. The enemy hates you. The enemy is using fear and insecurity in a big way all over the place to try to get people distracted. And, and it's not always just obvious. It's always sneaky. He's not creative. So he really just comes basically the same way, but in different ways. I really believe the Lord's got big things in store for you. I believe that because I believe he's got big things in store for this church. But it's gonna happen through individuals. But I really believe some of us, we've gotta just surrender to his plan. And even when we don't feel like it, we just say, God, I trust you and I trust your plan. But I'm also not just gonna wait and pray, I'm gonna walk. I'm gonna take up the authority that I've been given because of your son, Jesus, and I'm gonna walk, amen? Close our eyes, bow our heads. God is desperately in love with every one of you. Even if you don't see his plan, his plan proves his intimacy with you, his desire for you to, to walk close with him, to have life and life to the full, to have the full blessings. Look, we're, we're not a name it and claim it type 
place, but we do believe there are inherent promises that are given to every one of God's kids. They're available. But it is prefaced upon relationship. That authority and, and that plan, yeah, it is reserved. It's reserved for every person that surrendered to it. Every person that surrendered to him. So maybe you haven't done that. Well, the truth is, even as believers, we can struggle with fear and insecurity. We can struggle with losing vision and losing a dream. We can, we can struggle with, with taking personal responsibility and, and always wanting to be a victim to our circumstance and to our situation. It's always somebody else's or something else's fault. We, we can struggle with that even as believers, but the truth is we have no hope if we're not a believer. And so right now, maybe you feel that in your gut. You just don't have any confidence, any security, any grasp of the fact of how much God loves you. It's, it's not just a head knowledge God loves. It's something that hits you in your spirit, something that hits you in your gut that you can know without a shadow of a doubt but it's something you have to respond to. He's already initiated it. He initiated it at the cross. He said, I love you. He said, you're worth it. You're worth the pain and the agony and the sacrifice. You're worth it. He's initiated it, but you have to respond to it because he is a gentleman. He won't force himself in because that wouldn't be love. It has to be a choice. And so maybe you haven't made that choice. Or maybe you feel like you did, but you feel like you've been away from him. So maybe it's just you need to come back to him. You need to rededicate to this relationship with the living God. And if you're in either one of those places, you know you've never surrendered to him. You're ready to. Or you just need to come back to him. It's been cold. It's been dormant. If you're in any one of those places, I wanna pray with you. I want faith to rise up in you, even though in responding to that. I want you to put it into action. So if you know you need him and you're away from him, would you be willing to confess it? Be bold enough to confess it right now by raising your hand across this room. I need Jesus, I'm away from him. Put your hand up. As soon as I, put you, I see your hand, you can put it down. Got it, yes ma'am, yes sir. Anyone else? I'm just away from him. I need Jesus. I need a relationship with him. I need to rededicate my life and come back to him. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Anyone else? I need Jesus. I need Jesus. Got you. Okay. Anyone else? All right, praise God. Four or five people. So if you raise your hand, you raise your hands, not what gets you saved. But I know even as you raise your hand, you sense this faith being released inside of you. And that's why I ask you to do it. Because God's here to meet with you. He loves you. He loves you. The word says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, then you can be saved. And the reason why the confession of your mouth is important is because 
it helps build that faith. Your own ears need to hear it, but the enemy also needs to hear it. It also is because it'll bring support and encouragement around you. So if you've never been water baptized, that's the best way for you to go public with your faith. But I encourage you to tell somebody as soon as the service is over, you declare, I surrender to Jesus as my Lord and Savior. But let's initiate or let's respond to that relationship with Jesus right now by talking to him. So if you raise your hand, if you need him, let's just talk to him. Say this. Say, Jesus, I need you. I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself. I believe you died on the cross and paid the price for my sin. And I ask for your forgiveness. I also believe that you rose from the grave. And when you rose from the grave, you defeated death itself and my sin. So I have the hope of heaven. I can walk in freedom. I also wanna walk in my purpose. And I know I can't walk in a purpose if I'm holding on to my plan. And so I repent. I turn away from living the way I wanna live, the way the world lives. I wanna live according to your plan, to your word and to your purpose. For the rest of my life, I surrender to you. Be my Lord and Savior. Father, I thank you for those few folks that made that decision today, maybe more that didn't raise their hand. To you be the glory for that. But Lord, I pray that you help all of us to be aware of how the enemy would try to come and have us walk again as a slave to fear. And let us remember that if we will take up your plan, take up your authority, we can walk in boldness and courage and there are no obstacles and no odds that can come against us that you haven't already overcome and we get to just walk with you in victory. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.